Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider one of my favorite questions of all time. What is it that makes us human? There are so many ways to come at that question, but the angle we're taking today is through work. What is it about the work we do that is specific to us as humans? And how much of what we believe to be intrinsic to work is actually just a product of our culture? Given how much I love these kinds of questions, you won't be surprised that we leapt at the chance to invite anthropologist James Sussman to talk with us on Book Dreams about his recent book, Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. It was one of those, please say yes, please say yes situations. And when he did say yes, I confess I got pretty swoony. James draws from anthropology, archaeology, evolutionary biology, zoology, physics, and economics to create one of those books where you learn something fascinating on almost every page. From how we evolved to find purpose and meaning in work, to why modern people work far more hours a week than we need to, to how control of fire, quote, summoned into existence the concept of work and upended human power structures. James weaves in plenty of fun facts, too. Like, for example, did you know that John Harvey Kellogg designed his range of breakfast cereals specifically to kill sexual appetites? If you didn't, you're welcome. (laughs) There is so much to learn from this book, and we had so much fun talking to James about it. Just a few words about him before we get to our conversation. James Sussman, PhD, is an anthropologist specializing in the Khoisan peoples of Southern Africa. A recipient of the Smuts Commonwealth Fellowship in African Studies at Cambridge University, he is now the director of Anthropist Limited, a think tank that applies anthropological methods to solving contemporary social and economic problems. James's first book, Affluence Without Abundance, What We Can Learn from the World's Most Successful Civilization, was a 2019 NPR Best Book of the Year and a Washington Post Notable Book. Work, A Deep History, was an Amazon Best Book of the Month. James's writing has appeared in outlets including The New York Times, Salon, The Guardian, and Financial Times. Work, the book, upends some of the most deeply held beliefs that we, or at least I, had about work. That's where we started our conversation with James. Take a listen. I'd like to start this conversation with the thing that has been really blowing my mind since reading your book, which is... Basically, for almost all of human history, we were hunter-gatherers who worked maybe five hours a day, and the rest of the time we were just hanging out, enjoying ourselves, not feeling guilty about not working, with all our basic needs met, and, you know, relatively excellent standards of health and longevity. Which means that this idea that most modern people share about the virtue of hard work and a need for more stuff isn't inherent in us. It's not a truth that we should all hold self-evident, and there is, in fact, an alternative. So what I really want to ask you is, what's wrong with us, and why are so many of us making ourselves more miserable than we need to be? I wouldn't actually put it that way in terms of what is wrong with us. It's more a question of just what we are. 
And what we are as human beings is cultural creatures. I mean, this is the great wonder of culture is that it masquerades as second nature. It makes us believe things are absolutely normal and the only way to be. And our working lives have been shaped by a series of cultural norms that we inherited primarily from agricultural civilizations. The interesting thing is that we imagine that everybody's had these ideas all the time, but the evidence is that it's a relatively recent contrivance in terms of at least looking at history on a really long scale. So what are the attitudes toward work specifically that you might say are inherently human? Or are there any? Yeah, unquestionably. Work is a really interesting thing. You know, when we use the word work, we typically think of our jobs, first of all. But secondly, we recognize that we use the term intuitively in all sorts of other contexts and spaces. For example, we work at our relationships. We work at our hobbies. We work at childcare. And um, work is really any kind of purposeful activity. Our evolutionary history is one where it seems that our inclination to work has been shaped by a kind of unique self-awareness. We set out to work with an ambition in mind, an aim, a goal, a sense of what we want to achieve. And this, in many ways, is what differentiates us from bacteria when they go out and harvest energy. So work is a very fundamental part of who we are. And instinctively, we recognize that because Frankly, when you know we get punished and put into prison, we're denied the opportunity to do the kind of work that we want, and we suffer as a result of it. You say in your book that the control of fire is the technological advancement that has had the biggest impact on the human race. You also say, and I'm quoting you here, fire summoned into existence the concept of work. Tell us a little about human life before fire and human life after fire. First of all, we have to guess a little bit about when fire was mastered. The archaeological evidence is pretty sparse, but there's some really interesting physiological evidence which relates largely to the evolution of our brains. There's a very intriguing argument which suggests that in order to be able to get the nutrition necessary to have acquired these big brains, humans needed to have invented fire first because fire has this extraordinary capacity of one being able to concentrate energy in the form of food when we cook it. It also has the form of being able to make forms of food that are very difficult to get energy from um, in their raw state, in particular things like meat, which are very energy rich and dense. It has a way of breaking it down and making it very easily digestible and translatable again into the kind of forms that we can use very easily to get energy. And so in this sense, fire was the sort of great way where you effectively outsourced some of the work that was done by, for example, you know, when gorillas sit in the forest, they have to spend 12 or 14 hours a day eating, consuming, and digesting um, their heavy-duty food that they eat. By effectively outsourcing our energy needs to cooking, we effectively were able to pre-digest food. So it took some of those energy costs away from us. It allowed evolution and natural selection to invest more money in our typically large brains. There's a second dimension to it in that vastly enabled the range of, expanded the range of foods that humans could eat. 
you know, there are lots of foods that are frankly inedible raw. Some are even poisonous, like yams and things are poisonous before you cook them, mm-hmm. and potatoes even. So it vastly expanded the range of available energy forms for people. And it effectively meant that they suddenly began to have extra time on their hands. Fire was, in a sense, the first great labor-saving device in the deep history of humankind because fire, by outsourcing some of our energy needs to effectively burning things, it brought us the gift of free time. Certainly, it's hard to imagine in terms of human evolutionary history Many of the traits that we see and characteristics that we see as peculiarly human have having ever have been developed in the absence of fire. And what I'm talking about is the kind of energy and time we spend on doing things like making music, making art, singing songs, speaking, mm-hmm. whispering sweet nothings to one another. All of these things, I believe, were ultimately made possible by the fact that we had the time and energy to be able to spend time and energy, doing things other than simply getting the energy that we needed to survive. So you've studied the Juntwasi Bushmen, which is a hunter-gatherer society in Southern Africa's uh, Kalahari Desert, for 30 years. Can you tell us why you decided to go there for research and what your experience with them was like and how your time with them changed how you view work? Um, they're famous as a hunter-gatherer society, um, the Zhongwasi, but like all other hunter-gatherer societies, it's hard to call them hunter-gatherers anymore because the global economy has found its way to every corner of this planet, and in their case, it's fundamentally transformed their lives. The very first anthropologist to work with the Zhongwasi in the 1950s and 60s this was back when some groups of Zhongwasi were still pretty much autonomous hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari. And this is where they established that they worked for roughly 15 hours a week for economically active adults on the food quest and a similar number of hours on other domestic activities as well. And in other words, were well-nourished and lived reasonably comfortable lives, admittedly with much less stuff than we have. Now, that was then... And when I started working with them, it was really documenting their inclusion in the global economy. And so my interest in particular on focusing on work, attitudes and ideas they had about work and economics more fundamentally in terms of their engagement with the world that was transforming around them, a world in which people were expected to have jobs, to save money to work for money, to work on activities that didn't seem to have a great deal of value, and to work in ways which didn't, to them, make a great deal of sense. You know, So they would wonder, why is it that the person in the hot sun digging a ditch with a spade in the desert gets so much less of a reward than the person sitting in the office playing Minecraft on their computer? You talked earlier about one of the things that's inherent to being human is having a sense of purpose about work. And so when you compare a society like the Juntwasi, which I'm still working on, and a post-agrarian society, is there a difference in where they derive their senses of purpose? I don't think there is a tremendous difference. There's certainly a great difference between the way we work and spend our energy and the way they traditionally did. And 
Part of the differences is the way that we structure our working lives and our economies and the fact that much of our working lives we spend doing jobs. And jobs which are often quite boring, quite unskillful, quite unrewarding. When the Zhenghuasi work, and I'll use the example of hunting just because it's the one I was most familiar with. You know, hunting for Zhenghuasi was an activity that was incredibly skillful. You know, this was, wasn't, you know, just sticking on a jacket and having a six-pack of Budweiser out and going and blowing away at the local at a deer wandering by. It was a emotionally, intellectually, and physically hugely engaging activity. And it also brought with it real physical, nutritional rewards. Mm-hmm. It was essential work. And it was tiring, but as I say, it was you know, intellectually and physically engaging. I mean, it's a very difficult environment to hunt in the Kalahari. There are no hills, it's flat as anything, and there's trees everywhere. It's not like the Lion King where you look over the plain and it's teeming with wildebeest. Mm-hmm. You know, what you do is hunters look at the sand and they look at tracks and they read the tracks and they, you know, it's effectively like reading poetry. You have to, first of all, be able to read it in the same way that we can read letters and translate those letters into motives and movements and time and all sorts of things. So it's that intellectual engagement and then there's the physical, spiritual, skillful engagement with the process. You know, a hunter once described to me the sort of sense of satisfaction they get after a hunt. And, you know, a a good hunter would hunt maybe once a week. It would be a two-day affair and involve about probably about 17 hours of work and result in quite a lot of meat. But they describe the feeling afterwards. Well, I'm happy to take it easy, they say. So they don't get the Sunday scaries. And it's because that work is so fundamentally satisfying. As the one hunter said, hunting makes my heart happy, my legs heavy, and my belly full. Oh, Um, that's the dream, right? So (laughs) yes. There you go. That is job satisfaction. It is exactly. It's a kind of satisfaction that many of us lack in our working lives. We always have this great sense of incompleteness with work. And it's a sense of incompleteness that we actually tend to find that we get if we go out fishing on the weekend or we go for a hike or we do gardening. You know, for many of us with our day jobs, we don't get that sense of satisfaction, that sense of completion, that sense of complete engagement. Mm -hmm. And so then we have these sort of Sunday scaries. There's always a sense that something's unfinished. I don't think they suffered from that. And I think think there's a great lesson in that. And in particular, you know, since really the the 1920s and the beginnings of automation, where you've seen this sort of sucking out of skill from so many of the jobs that people do. Many of us are are effectively just adjutants to machines. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it affects us. Well, the sucking out of skill and also taking away the body. It's all brain work. It's not body work. Exactly. And brain work can be, you know, very unsatisfying sometimes. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Especially in the middle of the night. I think that what we're talking about is really getting at the the changes that happened to our ideas about work as a result of the agrarian revolution that took place about 12,000 years ago. Can you expound on that a little bit? How did work change for human beings as a result of that revolution? To explain that, I think that the the first thing I have to do is talk another thing about hunter-gatherers, because it's one of the few things that helps make sense. Hunter-gatherers like the Zhenghuasi have an economy where pretty much all labor effort 
Most of it is focused on meeting your immediate needs, your needs for that day only. Mm-hmm. So when Jinwasi went out gathering or went out hunting, they went out with the express view of satisfying themselves only in the short term. So if even, for example, they came across a grove of mangati nuts, which the trees were groaning under the weight of them and there was enough nuts for you know months, they would still only gather enough for one day. Mm-hmm. And they did so in the belief that their environment was provident and that whenever they needed something, they'd be able to go out and find something. So there was no focus whatsoever on accruing surpluses and there was no focus on worrying about tomorrow. They all understood the seasons and the seasonal cycle and so on. So they weren't, you know, ignorant of time and change. But, you know, it was sort of like living in a massive Walmart, you know, where you need something, you just go and get it. Right. Um, now, obviously, it requires a bit more effort and requires a certain amount of skills. And sometimes the shelves are empty and it can be tough. But their entire economic outlook was focused on the present. Farming, when that transition happened, and it took a long time for it to happen, but in farming, there's very few activities that are focused on the present. Pretty much every activity in farming is future focused. You know, if you are a wheat farmer, you prepare the fields in winter, you plow them, you plant them in spring, you then weed them and water them and nurture them and chase out the pests and do everything throughout the summer season. Then you have to harvest them, then you have to process the wheat and thresh and do everything. And eventually you grind it. And maybe if you're lucky by, you know, the beginning of the next year, you'll have some flour that you'll be able to bake into bread. Mm Mm-hmm. You're feeding yourself during the working process on surpluses that you've accumulated the previous year. So everything depends on, one, focusing on the future, two, focusing on developing surpluses. And these are really the two defining attributes of our economy. If you boil down the kind of work that most of us do now, it's to do with, one, accruing surpluses. You know, we want money which will support us in the future, one way or the other. And two, it's about focusing on some kind of future goal. You're going to school so you can get the qualification, so you can get the job, which you then get the job and do that work so that you can get the pension so that eventually you can die rich. Right. So there's very little immediate return effort expended in our economies. And I think it's something that we suffer for. And again, you know, this is why people enjoy the work of going out foraging in woodlands and finding some mushrooms, which they eat eat that day. There's something sort of visceral and very pleasing and enjoyable about it and something which we lack in a lot of our, our day-to-day lives. So in 1930, which in the grand scheme of things is fairly recent, the economist John Maynard Keynes famously predicted that by the early 21st century, economic growth, improved productivity, and technological advances would have solved the problem of economic scarcity. Everyone would have their basic needs met and no one would work more than 15 hours a week. Well, we passed those thresholds a long time ago. And in fact, today our standard of living has increased twice as much as Keynes predicted. And yet people still work as many hours per week as they did in 1930. What did Keynes fail to anticipate? Uh, Keynes failed to anticipate or to recognize that we are the cultural creatures that I mentioned right at the beginning of the interview. You know, economics is based on the idea that humans are ultimately rational, what they call economically rational creatures, that we will always get the most value for the minimum effort. 
and that essentially we need a series of basic needs met. Now, Keynes effectively misunderstood the fact that we are not economically rational creatures. And in fact, you know, anthropology is full of examples of people, you know, spending energy on activities that are deeply irrational in, you know, this sort of pure economic sense. Mm -hmm. And so he misread the fact that we are these cultural creatures and that we build a framework for our lives around a culture of work, around the time we spend in the workplace, um, that it would give us a sort of sense of meaning and identity. And that's really the sort of fundamental thing that he got wrong, was he, he misunderstood the extent to which humans are shaped, you know, we're not absolutely in control of our destiny, we are shaped by who we are and the world we come into. And that when cultural changes happen, they take a very long time. But I actually, I do think we are on that path. It just takes a lot longer to get there than Keynes anticipated because basically it requires a successive shift in generations. It requires certain cultural institutions to collapse, to begin to actually be actively disadvantageous before we challenge them. You know, we're a very intransigent species. We like continuity over change, even if the current circumstances are not ideal. And we'll often only change in the event of a crisis or when things have pushed us to the point that we no longer have a choice but to change. Look, the pandemic has been a, a very interesting catalyst of a change in attitudes about work. And I expect that we're going to see some pretty substantial changes over the years to come, not least because we have to address the way we organize work and we organize our economies purely in response to the emerging climate crisis. And with the pandemic, when we're forced to work at home, suddenly people realized that actually, you know, in many kinds of roles in the workplace, it wasn't a road to disaster. It shattered a well-established shibboleth about work. And in shattering that shibboleth, it also, at the same time, gave people the opportunity to get a sense of what life was like without all one's time dedicated to being in the workplace or getting to the workplace. So, so that was a fairly fundamental shift. And once you break one shibboleth, then other shibboleths can begin to fall as well. So, you know, there's this wonderful expression, a plastic hour, a period, a moment where sort of change seems possible. And I think we're in that at the moment certainly mm -hmm. in the way that we organize work. And I think the pandemic has played a big role in amplifying the deep currents that were already bubbling underneath that have enabled us to sort of ask these questions and seek these slightly different answers. And I expect big changes to come. How confident are you that this is evidence of lasting change? I'm absolutely not. I've, I have very little confidence in, in anything. And <laughs> predicting the future is, is a mugs game, basically. Mm -hmm. People say, oh, you sound very optimistic. I say, no, I'm, I've never been optimistic, but I'm constantly hopeful. Um, we are at a point where we can see what the problems are. And again, this was sort of why it was so important to sort of bring in that issue, you know, that correspondence with energy 
in the book. And this idea that work actually is this fundamental energy process because there's a clear correspondence between the amount of work we do and the amount of energy we use. And there's also a clear correspondence between the amount of energy we use and the ensuing environmental crisis, both in terms of climate change and biodiversity loss. And we spend an awful lot of time and energy and money producing and consuming things we don't particularly want or need, really just to sort of keep the sort of wheels of growth going because we have this slightly archaic idea that everybody has to be employed and doing stuff all the time. Yeah. And this ultimately is a set of destructive behaviors. And, you know, ironically, it's a set of destructive behaviors and nobody's even happy. I understand the human tendency for destructive behaviors. You know, lots of people smoke and drink and take drugs until they sort of waste away to nothing. But at least doing that is fun. With our economies, we're spending our time doing really dull things. Yeah. (laughs) And at the same time, cannibalizing our futures. Yeah, I think you cite a series of recent Gallup polls that say that something like 15% of employees worldwide feel engaged by their jobs. Yes. So there's clearly a need for change and indications that change may be afoot. In the conclusion of your book, you say, when in the 1960s, anthropologists began to work with contemporary forager societies, they did so in the hope that their work might shed some light on how our ancestors lived in the deep past. Now it seems that this same body of work might offer some insights about how we might organize ourselves in an automated future constrained by severe environmental limits. So what are the insights that you think we can gain from forager societies? And what might a post-scarcity society look like? Well, interesting. A post-scarcity society its a is basically a society where people's essential material needs are met, where people, you know, have enough food, warmth, and all the rest in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we're more than capable of meeting. We are productive enough to meet a very, you know, high level of basic needs. Now, in terms of the lessons from hunter-gatherers, there are two important things. The first is to recognize that we're not beholden to desperately desiring more. It's not part of human nature, as the economists will tell us. Rather, it is a function of inequality. Our sense that we don't have enough is not determined by absolute measures unless it is some kind of absolute scarcity. So if our basic needs are met, if we do have enough to eat and drink and live and warm, so on, our sense that we are hard done by is only a sense that we are hard done by relative to somebody else. So one of the key lessons from hunter-gatherers is, again, the sense of egalitarianism and the sense of material egalitarianism, the sense that people, you know, need not to have great differences in wealth shoved in front of their faces because it tends to lead to discord. It's part of our evolutionary history is that we are highly social beings. And part of the reason that we are such effectively social beings and so good at working together depends on a basic sort of social contract in a sense that resources are shared. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first lesson is that we have to recognize that, you know, societies with deep inequality are going to be societies which always hinge and are transformed by great political stresses and discord. 
And I think we see that, you know, everywhere. It's a sort of long and well-established pattern of history. The second thing that we can take from hunter-gatherers in terms of looking looking to the future is a sense of being able to focus more on our present needs. So when we are able to spend our working time or when we're comfortably supported by huge arrays of automata, it gives us greater freedom to focus on doing the things that really matter to us and doing the work that kind of matters to us. So again, this requires shifting our way, taking our way out of this economic mindset based on these institutions we inherited from agriculture and start looking at very alternate ways of organizing things. And I don't know precisely what those ways are, but I believe that we're at a point in time where it's incumbent upon us to experiment and to try things out. The world has never had 8 billion people. The world has never been so rich. We have never been so well-resourced. We've never had this ability to produce as much as we do and as easily as we do it. And it is incumbent upon us to actually start thinking, how do we reorganize the way we work and the way we organize our economies in order to respond to these changes? The lesson of the hunter-gatherers is that there's a different way of doing things, that we are not beholden to these things. And, you know, the future is not going to be doing things as hunter-gatherers or as hunter-gatherers did, but to recognize that we're capable of breaking out of our current constraints and thinking um, in terms of imagining our future. And we have to do that because the need to do it is urgent. I don't know about you, Julie, but I'm simultaneously excited and disheartened by what I've learned from James in his book. I'm excited because so many of the assumptions that we take for granted and think of as inviolate, the virtues of hard work and the accumulation of material wealth, those things are actually cultural norms that in many cases don't lead to happiness or fulfillment. And because they're cultural, they can be changed. There are other ways of organizing ourselves as a society. At the same time, I'm disheartened because, you know, 10,000 years is a lot of structure to dismantle and entrenchment to overcome. Yeah, but I hope that James is right, that we're in that plastic hour when change is possible. James also says that societies like hunter-gatherer societies that believe there will always be enough tomorrow are far more egalitarian than societies like ours that plan and accumulate because of a fear of scarcity tomorrow. It just seems like there is a lot to learn from different kinds of societies and those models offer hope for change. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find James on Twitter at anthrowittering and online at fromthebush.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.